Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Gabe Belporto, who's the CEO of Udacity, an online learning platform that focuses on making career advancement possible for its learners through mastery of in-demand skills. And prior to joining Udacity, uh, he held senior leadership roles at LendingTree and helped drive that business's growth into a multi-billion dollar financial services marketplace. So thanks, Gabe, for being with us today. Pleasure to join. So I'd love to start by learning more about your background and career path. Uh, for example, how did you go from earning a bachelor's and master's degree in nuclear engineering to now running one of the most popular learning sites? <laughs> so I'm a little bit of a purple unicorn in terms of background. It's very unusual. Um, I think the theme that runs through it is uh, I just love learning. And I, and I am personally a lifelong learner, which I really think is, in a way, the skill of the future. So, so I studied nuclear engineering because I thought it was fascinating. I got out into industry and realized, you know, I'm working for a nuclear utility, which is the slowest moving organization on the planet by design, because last year the core didn't melt down, so you just don't do anything different. And um, <laughs> so I shook things up a little bit, uh, did a tour of duty and strategy consulting and kind of cut my business teeth. Uh, then moved into marketing because it was like the exact opposite of engineering, you know, much more emotional and creative. Um, and worked my way up through the marketing ranks and got the nod as the CMO of LendingTree uh, back in 2011 and, uh, and really helped LendingTree uh, initially build like a world-class marketing and growth engine to really ignite the growth of the company. But then over time took over as president and shifted strategy a bit and diversified the business, launched uh, eight or nine different lines of businesses. It worked out really well. So and then one Friday night, I got a call from our CEO, Doug Lebda, who turned out to be a you know, real mentor for me in my career. And he said, hey, Gabe, do you want to be the CFO? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, look, you know the business inside now, you know how to grow the business, but I need someone in finance who can drive the business, drive the P&L you know, from a strategic perspective and really build a world-class analytics organization for decision-making. I said, okay, that kind of makes sense. Let me give it a shot. So it was, it was a little uncomfortable for the first couple of weeks and months as I figured out the ropes of the finance role, but it turned out to be just a fantastic opportunity for me to stretch myself and expand my skill set. And you know, over the course of my tenure there from 2011 to 2018, we grew the company's stock price from $5 to $251, the number three return on the NASDAQ. I learned a ton company did great and, and went through a ton of growth. And it was just a, a really great relationship, which kind of brings me through today, which is, you know, after I left LendingTree and I joined the board, I was thinking and spent a lot of my time thinking about my home state of West Virginia. And I grew up in the, you know, 70s and 80s. And at the time, it was a pretty vibrant economy. But then I go back today and I see towns boarded up, country clubs shut down, and people working in, you know, minimum wage service industries. And it's very acute pain. And, and I see what happens when people don't reskill when the world changes. And so that was very much top of mind when I met Sebastian, the founder of Udacity, and, and they were looking for a CEO. And he said, yeah, yeah, why don't you, instead of trying to figure out how to help West Virginia, do that too, but also help the world and help the world figure out how to reskill themselves so they don't have to go through the pain that West Virginia went through. And I said, you're right. So that's what brought me to Udacity. It is absolutely my passion. You know, the product is amazing and it, and it changes people's lives for the better. That's quite a career and quite an amazing story about how you got involved. Um, I actually didn't know that about the West Virginia connection. So that actually brings me to my next question, which is, you know, we're in the heart of the COVID pandemic. 
we're seeing record levels of unemployment. Nothing's been worse since the Great Depression. And even there's some predictions that will get worse than the Great Depression. I'm just curious, have, have you seen at Udacity like an increase in enrollments as a result of this? I'm curious, like how has it affected the business at this point? So, so when I think about our, our core businesses, we have a consumer business, which is how everybody knows Udacity. We also have an enterprise business that is growing like crazy and uh, will probably be our largest business this year. So we're selling to Fortune 500 companies to retrain their workforces and digitally transform them. And then we have a government business that is you know, helping governments retrain their populations and build the skills they need within their, uh, their national borders. And we kind of expected a spike in the consumer business, which we saw. And so we've seen like a 10x increase in daily signups. We expected an increase in the government business, which we've seen. So we've seen strength in that business. Uh, enterprise business, we didn't really know because we thought, you know, enterprises might cut back their, their training spend and workforce development spend. But it turns out we're not seeing that. We're actually seeing a lot of strength in the enterprise business. And the reason is we've really attached to business transformation. And so, you know, we typically partner with CIOs and CTOs, understand, you know, the fact that these giant corporations need to go through digital transformation. They need to build AI skills and need to build software development skills. Those skills are hard to come by in the market. And we're helping them build those skills internally. And then those people help them transform their businesses. So we're kind of viewed as, as mission critical in that respect. So to answer your question, across all of our business, we've seen an uptick, even though we maybe weren't totally expecting the enterprise piece. Uh, and certainly on the consumer side, we've seen you know, a big upswing in, in signups. So I, I know Udacity kind of distinguished itself initially with like the nano degrees and the fact that there was a heavy, heavy focus on cutting edge uh, AI training. That's where Sebastian through I know came from and leading the Google car development, for example. I'm curious, is that still the secret sauce of Udacity or what else has, has, have you guys kind of added that have made you distinguished from other education platforms? So it's a, it's a really important question and a great question. If you think about just this massive flood of people that are now unemployed, if you tried to retrain them on the university system, you would break the university system. There's just not enough capacity. And you would also probably bankrupt the country, right? You know, it's very, very slow and expensive to educate someone through the university system. Udacity helped create a whole category called MOOCs, which Initially, MOOCs, uh, massively open online courses, which initially took university content, videotape professors, put it online. Now you could watch a University of Michigan or MIT professor deliver a lecture and the MOOCs made it free or cheap, which is great. So you could be in Argentina or Germany or wherever and watch an MIT professor. That was awesome. Uh, the problem with that is you don't learn karate by watching Bruce Lee movies. And the problem with, you know, the tradition, just taking a traditional university lecture and putting it online, it's like, it's kind of interesting. Maybe you get some information, but you don't learn like hands-on practitioner level skills. And so Sebastian and my predecessors at Udacity came up with a better model, right? In between those two, which is we start with project-based learning. So we start with an employable job resume. So if you want to be a machine learning engineer, if you want to be a data analyst, if you want to be a self-driving car engineer, your resume has these four bullet points. Like I've actually done this, done this, done this, and done this. I haven't read about it or watched a video, like I've done it. And then we work backwards and we say, well, how do we get them that hands-on experience? So we create like deep immersive projects where you take software, you apply it to massive data sets, you apply machine learning algorithms and you deliver it in a real world industry specific context where you can actually say like, I delivered a credit model for a credit card company or I delivered you know, a software for you know, this security application. And then we go into industry, not into academia, and partner with people like Google and Amazon and Intel and co-create the actual content. 
right? So think of our experience as like a four to five minute video lecture led by someone at Google or Amazon, followed by hands-on keys coding, followed by another lecture coding, lecture coding, reinforcement learning, end of the month, go deep into immersive project, deliver a real world tangible industry outcome, repeat that for four to five months, 10 hours a week, part-time, 2 a.m., 4 a.m., 6 p.m., doesn't matter. And you come out of this with like a resume that you've actually done it and you can actually uh, do something. Like an example of this in our self-driving car engineer course, your capstone project, you upload your code into our self-driving car that drives around our parking lot with your code and it stops in red and goes on green and doesn't hit stuff. So that's really the core of what we do. It's a lot harder than taking a university professor and putting their content online, right? But it just works 10 times better. And so for about a hundredth the cost of a university degree, about a tenth the cost of a boot camp, you come out of these programs with employable practitioner level skills. All right. I have to ask the follow-up question, which is you mentioned that people upload their software to your own self-driving car. Have you ever been very positively or very negatively surprised by the outcome of that? Well, you know, the beauty of project-based learning is you upload that code and it either works or it doesn't. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And if it works, you pass. If it doesn't work, then we have what's called project reviewers and whatever project you, whether you pass or fail, uh, you get line by line code reviews back. And so if you upload it and it runs into a wall or something, well, then, you know, they're going to review it and give you feedback and you're going to submit it again. So uh, the beauty of the, of the model is like your, your code actually has to work to pass the class. Yeah, I, lo I love that model a lot. I mean, in, in medical education, we have a lot of problem based learning. And obviously, you have to go see the patients and take care of the patients before you can actually get your degrees. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, you're seeing a lot of demand because of COVID. We call this podcast Raise the Line because essentially what our focus is at Osmosis is how do we increase healthcare capacity through workforce training? And I believe that uh, you all have launched an AI in healthcare course. I'd love to learn more about that and what Udacity is doing in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, healthcare is uh, obviously like right now an absolutely crucial field, but always a super important field. And we're seeing a lot of innovation in healthcare. So as you mentioned, we just launched an AI for healthcare nano degree. And so think about this as how you use AI across a bunch of different applications in healthcare. So, you know, one, one of our projects is looking at x-rays and applying AI to diagnose x-rays. There's tons of applications uh, that you can apply to COVID, like tracking patients, like predicting the spread of a pandemic, and uh, they can really inform governments and how to respond, how quickly to respond. So I think it's like AI in healthcare has never been more critical or more relevant with COVID, but also beyond just your typical COVID applications in terms of creating smart hospitals and augmented decision-making where you maybe have a physician, but you also have an AI sitting there looking at the same data and coming at it from a different angle, forcing each other to think about it in different ways. Also really interesting is the, the kind of the mobile medicine market, and that's projected to be a $23 billion market in the next couple of years, both just delivering medicine online through video streaming, but also like diagnosis and tracking your heart rate to predict different health issues. So there's just tremendous applications of AI and machine learning to healthcare, and we're just scratching the surface. AI in healthcare has always been interesting to me because uh, actually right before I started Osmosis, I wrote an, a paper with a guy named Eric Topol, who I'm sure you know, he's literally wrote the book on AI in healthcare. And uh, one of the articles we published was on mobile medicine and how it can be used to improve health education. So it's really cool to see that Udacity is leading the charge in that. 
curious, of the people who enroll in AI in healthcare and medicine, do you see a lot of clinicians doing that? Or is it more software engineers who are interested in healthcare? Or uh, how, how are you seeing that uh, map out? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I think it's probably a bit of both. There's a big industry around just research, right? So it's going to obviously be the research centers, anyone who's kind of interested in how to apply AI to their situation and make it more efficient. Hospitals obviously can benefit here. You mentioned Dr. Topol. We are in the middle today and tomorrow of a AI for healthcare conference that we just put on, a virtual conference in the time of COVID. And he is keynoting tomorrow, Wednesday the 13th, and that will all be made online for, uh, for your viewers. So if you want to see Dr. Topol talk about AI and healthcare and applications, you can come to our site and, and watch him speak about it. But yes, for, I mean, for sure, it's, it's a broad mix. And we see this across our programs. We find people who are you know, wanting to just learn. We find people who are wanting to upskill themselves and do their jobs better. We're finding people who want to move into a new area, right? You know, our program is really just designed to give you those hands-on practitioner level skills. So no matter what angle you're taking, um, you're coming out of that with like real applicable skills. So you can actually apply it to a, you know, machine learning or, or AI to a data set and, and see the outcomes as you go. That's wonderful. And, you know, it, it actually reminds me of another famous person who I heard speak a couple of years ago, Vinod Kosla who uh, at one point got a little controversy because he said 80% of what doctors will do will be replaced by machines uh, in the next decade. It was controversial because I think he was misinterpreted as believing that 80% of doctors wouldn't be needed, but it will change the role right. of doctors. I'm just curious, um, you know, since so many of our audience members are currently or future health professionals and, and you all are doing so much around AI and healthcare, what do you see as the role of a clinician being over the next decade, you know, based on all the AI that's coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I think um, AI does really well, for example, taking huge data sets and then predicting likely outcomes. AI and software in general does really well of taking anything that could be repeated and automating that. Where AI doesn't do well, at least not for the next several years, is uh, in really the creative thought. Right. So there's going to be a lot of situations where, you know, what's thought of as the core value of a doctor or a clinician is automatable through AI. But there's going to be a lot of other areas where, where, you know, it's not. And so I think you should constantly be looking at your skills. You should not assume that what you're doing is going to be what you're doing five years from now. And you should, you know, be thinking about how do I upskill myself in those areas that AI is not good at and, and really kind of emphasize there. Or, how do I become the person who's creating the, you know, the technology that is automating and you'll probably make, you know, a lot of money doing that. So <laughs> one of those two paths is, is fine. I think assuming that your job is not going to be touched is not a really good strategy. That makes sense. I mean, we get a lot of talk about how retail workers or transportation workers will be automated, uh, their jobs will be automated away. So they have to reskill, but it's important for health professionals to remember that maybe this can help them focus on less memorizing things and regurgitating facts and more on uh, the care aspect of being a caregiver or a clinician. So empathy is not something AI is particularly good at, right? So like, <laughs> you know, understanding, you know, the, the specific situations and being creative and being empathetic and, and things like that, I think it, it's, that's something that's quite hard for, for an AI to do. Totally. hundred percent. So I'm curious, do you have any kind of final thoughts or comments that you'd like to share with our audience? Look, there are more people out of work, as you mentioned, than at any time since the Great Depression. 
who knows where it goes from here, but my guess is it's going to be a really hard year or two. I think personally, uh, this is the time for individuals, governments, and enterprises all to step up and take upskilling seriously, right? Many of those jobs that have been eliminated are just not coming back. You better believe that this is the COVID is going to accelerate digital transformation and automation. And so many of the jobs that weren't eliminated will be eliminated. And if we don't reskill, if we don't take this seriously, a lot of us are going to be sitting in menial service uh, industries and making minimum wage. And that's not what anybody wants. So I think number one, government has an important role. And, you know, I put forth a specific plan, which is, I think we should take our whole notion of spending all of our federal dollars against universities is, is a terrible idea. I mean, universities play a really important role, but if we took 10% of our budget and spending on universities and spent that on upskilling programs, you could reskill three and a half million people, right? That's a big number. If we gave tax credits, even small tax credits to corporations for retraining, those corporations would match those tax credits and then invest in reskilling their workers instead of laying them off. And then individuals need to take responsibility for upskilling themselves. Don't assume that your employer is going to do it, right? Because some of them will, but most of them won't. And you need to really think about your career going forward and, and what are the skills of the future and making sure you're on the bleeding edge. Look, I started marketing back, uh, as I mentioned, at a time when most marketing was TV and direct mail. My first job was in direct mail. That entire industry is mostly digital now. And the people who made the transition actually got better jobs and made more money. And the people that didn't kind of got left behind. And I think the same will be true of every industry. So I, you know, I would just encourage everybody to think about that. Think about what the future looks like. Think about how to you know, continue to add to your skill set. And it doesn't have to get Udacity. It doesn't have to be training in AI or, or software development. But figure out what the jobs of the future are and go for those and continually evolve yourself. That's uh, definitely great advice and, and super fascinating conversation. I really appreciate how specific some of your proposals have been and, and again, all the work that you and uh, your team at Udacity are doing. So with that, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us today, Gabe. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate being on your show and uh, it was great speaking with you. Thank you. And with that, I'm Shivulani. Thank you for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. Remember, we're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.